Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the New Ethiopian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt and I'm joined by Matt Withers. Hello, Matt. Hello there. Hello. How, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. I'm good, thanks. Now, a bit of housekeeping to start with. Now, if you if you follow us, um, or me, um, on on Twitter, uh, you will have seen this week that the, the our normal course, the beloved, my best buddy, my... My um, my my good pal Steve Anglesey is taking a break from from the New European podcast uh, and his column in the paper for a little while. He's working on a few projects, but I'm sure we'll be able to keep you informed on on how that's going. I'm sure we'll hear from Steve very soon. But in the meantime, Matt Withers is going to be joining us um, for for a few weeks at least, Matt. But of course, Matt is as we mention on the pod every week, the guy who makes this podcast arrive in your ears. He's the man behind the scenes. He he sorts it out. I just ramble on for a few hours. He does the, the actual legwork. So it's a pleasure and a delight, Matt, to have you chatting to us. Thanks. Um, I, I mean, I don't know how this is is, is going to work. In football, there's not a great way of, um, a great record of number twos or coaches stepping up to become the full-time manager. It tends to end very badly. I don't want to be the kind of Craig Shakespeare to Steve's Claudio Ranieri here. Kind of give it to Withers till the end of the season. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> I'm sure you'll do a fantastic job, as always. I, we were very keen, of course, um, to... We thought this was a great opportunity to get some more diversity on the pod. Um, so we have promoted another middle-aged uh, white man into Steve's role. So I think that is that should be applauded. Um, but we have got guests. We've got guests, um, which hopefully will address that. And we've got... Uh, we, we'll do the news, and then we're going to speak to... Andrew Tickell, who's an academic at Glasgow Caledonian University. He's also a columnist um, for the National Newspaper um, up in Scotland. Um, so we're going to be talking about, well, all things independence. I think we probably know which side of that argument he comes down on. Um, and then later on, we're going to speak to Cash Ball. She's a London-based uh, reporter, originally from Northern Ireland. So we thought, what a great opportunity um, to speak about borders and Biden uh, and all kinds of other stuff. And then, Matt, I have prepared a little quiz at the end and i know that you hit the bleep button and all that kind of thing but there is going to be a little bit of swearing um i'll try and keep it to a minimum is that all right yeah if you could because it is quite time consuming it is i mean i used to do the cutting and it is a bit of a pain in the backside um i have to admit so i'll try i'll try i'll try my very hardest but it's going to be tricky so let's start with um 
Trump, because we've been talking about Trump and Biden for many, many weeks. Of course, we finally got a result at the weekend. We sort of knew it was coming when we recorded the pod last week. Um, and we are, fingers crossed, going to have a new president in the United States. Matt, what, what do you think? Well, uh, I'm working on the assumption that Biden will be the next president. Although there is part of me. I, I, when I was last on this podcast talking about this, I... I um, still suspected that Trump would win. So I won't believe it until I see Joe Biden on January the 20th with his hand on a on a Bible being sworn into office. But, you know, touch wood, everything seems good at the moment. It does. I mean, t- obviously, tr- Trump has been k- kind of kind of quiet-ish. I sort of expected a bit more from him. Do you think that he's finally listening to his lawyers, perhaps? And um, because obviously they ha- they've already launched some um some legal bids haven't they i think uh there are challenges have been launched in uh michigan nevada arizona i believe um and and there's probably i think there'll be one in pennsylvania as well um and there still seems to be some confidence in trump do you think that's just misplaced or is he just a really awful loser he's one you know he's one of those kids in the playground who's when you're playing football get beat where you want to if we ain't got that soft penalty you know if this that and the other he just needs an excuse when he loses do you think that's what it is i think it's a bit of that certainly um he said before the election that i think his quote was it's easy to win um it's it's hard to lose certainly for me um, so I think it's certainly part of his part of his character that he's finding this difficult to take. If you see some of the snaps of him in the back of his car as he travels back and forth from his golf course, which seems to be what he's doing mainly at the moment, he looks quite a, a broken figure. Um, but I, I think it's probably also part of what he does next. Um, if he decides that he wants to remain in politics, then to plant that seed firmly in his base's mind that he was wrongly illegally denied his second term in office that he believed was rightfully his then that's going to be a very very powerful part of his narrative going forward do do you think that's the case i mean lots of talk about a uh, a sort of news channel perhaps or some kind of tv channel where he would just be able to spout trumpisms all day long yeah, I mean, there's, well, there's two options, aren't there? He stays in politics or or he doesn't. And, you know, as you allude to it, you know, he could leave frontline politics having decided it isn't worth the hassle and do what um, many thought his initial presidential bid was about, which was attention-grabbing precursor to launching his own TV network. Um, mm. He's, by all accounts, furious with Fox News for projecting Biden would win Arizona, and he's been yeah. tweeting for months that it's fawning coverage isn't as obsequious enough for him. Um, he didn't use that word, obviously. <laughs> uh, in in May, he tweeted he was looking for a new outlet. So he may well have come to the conclusion that the only network that can sufficiently stroke his ego is one owned and controlled by him and his children. Um, that said, uh, it, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do to to, to set up um, from from scratch a, a, a TV uh, channel. Um, so I, you know, just in terms of getting a license in in, in the states. So. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. Well, it'll be fascinating. And what about Biden? Then we should we, we shouldn't just talk about Trump, of course, um, because um, Joe Biden is victorious. Uh, and what, whatever happens between now and January, um, he 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 won. Um, I got some heat on Twitter this week, um, and I and I kind of understood where it was coming from, but perhaps I didn't make myself clear enough last week on the podcast where 
because I've I'll, I will and I'll continue to refer to Biden as a flawed candidate, and not the uh, you know if that's the best that Democrats have got to offer now, I know why it was close. Um, but none, but that doesn't take away from his statesmanship, from his vast experience, the fact that he seems like a, se- a sensible head. He's just a great breath of fresh air, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, I was you know I, I I looking back at other Democratic candidates, he just he doesn't exactly fill me with doesn't inspire me let's say but i do think he will be a safe pair of hands and i think that's exactly what not just america but the world needs how do you think he's sort of um done in in the first week since since he won i think he's been fine um i that's it isn't it biden he's been fine he's he's been (laughs) fine and 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 that's you know as you as you say that that's what what's needed I, i watched the um the speech he gave on the importance of um mask wearing a, a couple of days ago um and he, he seemed a little unsteady he was he was repeating himself uh, a bit he was stumbling over his words although he's a you know he's a lifelong um stutterer um so that's that's understandable um but there was nothing to to, to worry you there i think the important thing is he's he's putting and we'll we'll get onto this in the, the uk context uh later he's he's putting the right people into place around yeah. him yeah um he's he's filling his team with adults um who know which levers to pull i mean trump surrounded himself with people who like him hadn't done politics properly before and then wondered why things didn't happen when they wanted to happen so by bringing in people who you know um as i heard john sopel on on the radio this morning say know where the gents are in the west wing you know they've worked there before and they know capitol hill and you know some people will say that well it's a return of the, the swamp um, but other people say, hey, having people who know what they're doing uh, in positions of importance, you know, that sounds like a good idea. It, it does, really. Um, you know, I can, I, can see, I can see why people may be attracted by, you know, um, let's get someone who isn't a politician doing this. I can, I, I know, I'm not a supporter of populism or Trumpism or anything like that. But I can see how that might be to someone who's feeling like they've been ignored, like um, like they're never listened to by the political class. You can see why that is attractive. But the realities of it are very different, aren't they? Like every armchair football um, supporter who thinks he could have scored that penalty, you know, when when it's actually, when, when there's 80,000 people watching you um, and you've actually got to take it, it's a little bit different. And I think, uh, you know, as much as politicians are flawed, um, and I don't just mean elected politicians, I mean people who work in politics, um, it, it is kind of their job. So, I mean, this is going to be a huge task for Biden. I'm fascinated to see what um, what the uh, inauguration is going to be like. I'll tell you what I think would be really cool, because there was some discussion, wasn't there, when supposedly, I don't know how true this is, but I've read it in a couple of places, that Trump considered taking his vow um, on, on the art of the deal rather than on the Bible. Yes, this was on the um, the recent BBC documentary. That's series. right. Yeah, that's it, was, right. it was one of his staffers. Um, <laughs> her name escapes me, but she said, yeah, he, um, he, he did suggest it and kind of tried to brush it off as a joke. But people say he doesn't do jokes. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't really have a great deal of a sense of humour. So, yeah, I think he genuinely considered it, albeit perhaps briefly. Well, I mean, I, I don't think that Biden would do this, but wouldn't it be great if he took his his vow of, of office on the art of the deal? I mean, how angry would Trump be if that was to be the case? That would be ultimate, <laughs> ultimate trolling 
on the part yeah. of Joe Biden, and um, I would be absolutely uh, that would be that would be brilliant. I, I, I'm I, I'm no political advisor, um, but if anyone from and of course they will be Joe Biden's camp are listening, then um, you bear that in mind. I think it's I think it's a great a great idea. Now we will continue with the news. Um, very shortly, but I believe we're we're joined by Ed, Andrew. Is it Andrew Tickell? Is it Tickell, Andrew? It's Tickell. Yeah, as, yes. as all fan, as all fans of the thick of it know. <laughs> well, we did have this discussion before you came on um, about the thick of it. The thick of it will be coming up a bit later on in the podcast as well. Well, thank you so much for for coming on. Um, I, I introduced you a little bit early, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do and why we're interested in you? Sure, absolutely. Well, I have a kind of divided life, I suppose. By day, I'm a lecturer in law in uh, in Glasgow at Caledonian, Caledonian University there. Um, but I'm also um, a writer, um, a commentator around Scottish politics, and I write a weekly column in the Sunday National newspaper. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I guess, Matt, we were interested in, in John Major's comments, weren't we, to kick off? Yeah, an interesting comment that John Major's made. It's probably the most senior conservative figure to have uh well i suppose from from his point of view he he warned quite starkly about how boris johnson's government's actions were um putting a pathway in place in effect for scottish independence i guess you were taught more about the hope and opportunity andrew that 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 would that would bring but it I find it very, very interesting now that this is not um, a fringe consideration uh, around people in the Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. Indeed, yes. I mean, for a while now, since Brexit referendum results in 2016, the line has been now is not the time. You know, that was Theresa May's line on it. And that has been reiterated more and less assertively by senior Conservative figures. But of course, during that period of time from 2016, we know that a majority of Scots voted to remain in the EU. And that was stymied and frustrated by the votes in the rest of the United Kingdom. And so for a period of time, the question really was, well, would that make any difference? Is that likely to shift the dial in terms of independence, which we know was a 45-55 split back in 2014. And for a long period of time, that dial didn't seem to move. You know, the polls weren't moving dramatically on independence. But now we've seen um, since the kind of beginning of the COVID crisis, and it's interesting to what extent it's driven by that, um, a shift in public opinion, uh, really reflecting now a fairly sustained majority across every single political poll which has been taken in Scotland towards a position for independence, flipping that 45-55 in exactly the other um, direction. Now, some of that, I think, is short-termism. Some of that's about things that are happening now and have been happening over the last six months. But um, other things, I think, are more fundamental and reflects these you know, much more long-lasting, you know, now half-decade-long, I suppose, divergence in the politics in this country. A lot has been said about um, the SNP government's handling of the, of the pandemic and how that compares to uh, Boris Johnson's government. But actually, um, the measures have essentially been the same. It's been more a, a difference in communication. Would you Would you agree? I think, well, I suppose there's two different things there. I suppose we locked down sooner in terms of the wave developing in Scotland. So we locked down at an earlier stage. It was just less embedded in the communities, I think, at the start of this pandemic. And over the summer, we emerged from it in a slower pace. So we were locked down for a longer period of time um, in Scotland. That obviously was a substantial difference for folk uh, living here. I do think, you know, the communications are not unimportant and just the personalities are not unimportant. I think when you watch Boris Johnson talking about even serious questions, he really 
really is a man who struggles to keep a straight face. And I find that quite remarkable. You know, he doesn't really live the tone of serious statements like statesman like man. And when he tries, he just looks daft. Whereas Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister in Scotland, can live in that persona much more straightforwardly. I think we've seen from the Scottish government just less of the zikotic lurching and diving around between ridiculous optimism and exaggerated claims on the one hand. There's been a lot more sort of rough talking of, listen, lads, this is going to be grim and it's going to be grim for a period of time. And I think that's perhaps a tone that the public was more susceptible to hearing in the Scottish um, context. I think it's also significant, though, if you look at the polling on this from Scotland, if you ask about the personalities, then, as you say, there's a strong perception of difference between Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson. That is brutally clear for the UK government. But it's also institutional. And I find that most important. You know, if you ask the Scottish people what governments they thought were doing better, Scottish government or uh, Westminster government, then institutionally the Westminster government comes off poorly. Now, some of that will, of course, be down to the present leadership of the Tory party in Westminster, but I don't think it's exclusively limited to that. I think that shift in terms of a negative evaluation of outcomes, really, from the Westminster government and a positive one from the Scottish government is something that if I was a unionist, which obviously I'm not, would, would give me the terrors, frankly, because the 2014 referendum around independence was, was not one of warm solidarity and sentiment within the UK. That wasn't mm. the argument by the Better Together campaign, despite the slogan. It was really one of kind of cold, cold-hearted, logical, economic calculation. And, you know, this is where your best interests lie. If Scots begin to think that the UK government isn't even functional, doesn't even really operate materially in their interests, then the case for the union is going to feel even thinner um, than, than it felt going into this crisis. But Andrew, do, do you not, and, and I, I think you're absolutely right with all those points, but I mean, another another independence referendum is surely some considerable time away, isn't it, with a Tory government with a decent majority? And I mean, the, the, Boris Johnson or indeed any predecessor is not going to, is not going to grant that, are they? Well, I suppose there's two different points there. Firstly, why not politically? I mean, why not? We're going to have a Scottish referendum, sorry, a Scottish election in the spring. That doesn't look like it's going to be delayed. On the current polling evidence, there's going to be a substantial a substantial majority for a pro-independence position. There's already a majority for independence in the Scottish Parliament, but that seems likely um, to be extended in the next Holyrood election. Both the Labour Party and indeed the Scottish Conservatives are, are currently in doldrum land, doldrum territory going nowhere. Why shouldn't that democratic choice by the people in Scotland who we were told are sovereign and their choice of how we're governed. I mean, why shouldn't that be consequential politically? I don't think it should be accepted sort of casually, oh, well, simply because a grossly undemocratic electoral system in the rest of the UK and the voters of England decide they wish to be ruled by the Conservative government, that we should accept at all the principle that we're obliged to what, hang around and wait? Um, secondly, it's not actually legally clear with that hat on that it's required necessarily to have mm. consent by the Westminster government. This is endlessly repeated, but it's never been authoritatively determined. You know, it's not a knockdown argument one way or the other. It's legally contestable. And I'm not saying that the UK government would lose that case necessarily. They may well win it, but so might the Scottish government. I so agree they, with you. So, sorry, sorry. I, mean, I, I agree completely that, there, there's, you know, personally, I don't see why, there, why there, there shouldn't be a referendum. What I'm saying is I think it's unlikely that a Tory government would agree to it. So are you suggesting that maybe the route into forcing that through potentially would be a legal route? 
Potentially, yep, that's certainly a possibility. So it's never been tested or authoritatively defined, you know, uh, whether or not uh, the Scottish Parliament doesn't have the authority to do that off its own back. Of course, ultimately, if you have a positive yes vote, you would require effectively the cooperation of the UK government to deliver that. And this we get into a more sort of revolutionary situation. And, and, I, mm. and I say that with kind of caution because the UK government is not facing a costless choice here. I mean, in terms of folk like myself, you know, I am an impeccable constitutionalist, nationalist, and, and reflect that dimension in the party, which has been longstanding, the idea that you want to operate politically within the rule of law, you want to operate within the existing democratic institutions of the UK to achieve this democratically and peacefully without a single person being harmed. That's always the aspiration and goal and remains it. Um, but in terms of the UK government simply saying, oh, well, no, um, what do they think that's going to do to public opinion, firstly? Mm. Or, or to people, you know, in, in situations like myself who, who want to pursue this through these democratic means um, and, 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 and yet, you know, are frustrated by those means? As you see, you know, in the American context as well, if you, if you see the ballot box doesn't matter, then as a matter of statecraft and politics, that has consequences too about what you're doing to your opponents. Um, and I think that's something which if I was a Tory minister, I would be quite concerned about as much as the possibility of losing in any campaign that I allowed to be held. Andrew, just wanted to come back to, you talked about the, uh, the potential of a pro-independence majority. I noticed this is the phrase that's always used. So I hold my hands up to being a typical ignorant London-based <laughs> journalist. Um, but I have read bits and bobs of potentially other um, breakaway groups, um, another party pro-independence, which could perhaps just stand on the on the list system rather than in, con in constituencies. I mean, what for those of us who, who don't follow Holyrood, what, what's going on there? Sure, this is a kind of a quirk of the electoral system. So unlike the first-past-the-post system used for UK elections, uh, we use the, the Dahon additional member system, which feels eyes glazing over already at that. But basically, we've got constituencies on the one hand that are voted for by first-past-the-post, and then there's a second vote on a regional list, which is allocated based on a more proportionate basis, taking into account you know who's won in the constituencies in Glasgow and Edinburgh and so forth. And so there have been mooted some ideas about could you game the system? Could you have a party that just runs on the list? Uh, on the current evidence, that's going nowhere, frankly. I mean, going absolutely nowhere. Um, in terms of the polling around this, public polling, it's not even impinging on public consciousness that such a thing is a possibility, is running or is being campaigned for. So although it is simmering away in the background and may well peel off a few votes, actually recent evidence has suggested, you know, since the year 2003, when we had a rain Scottish Parliament, which was the most diverse ever, which included folk like the Scottish Pensioners Party, one chap was elected that year. Um, we've seen consolidation by mainstream political parties in Scotland since the SNP nudged ahead of Labour in 2007. And really, that seems to be the logic still. Um, so the SNP is running favourites in constituencies across the country, which gets you almost close enough to getting to that uh, majority position. But if you do well enough on the list, as we saw in 2011, even in this proportional election, electoral system, a party like the SNP, which is sufficiently dominant, can in fact garner a majority from this electoral system. We also have the Green Party, long-standing, relatively electorally successful as a small minority party, um, and they've been doing better in some recent years. They've not been pulling ahead tremendously well. Their hopes perhaps to do better than they have done have been uh, kind of dogging them over the past couple of Holyrood elections. But they're also a pro-independence political party, which would form part of that potential overall majority in favour of Scotland uh, leaving the United Kingdom.
I should say I covered the the Welsh Senna for many years, so the haunt is something I feel pretty pretty hot <laughs> on. Um, one thing that's really not reported south of the border, astonishingly so, I, I think, are these tensions at the, at the top of the party between Nicola Sturgeon and her predecessor Alex Salmond. Um, this goes back to uh, the court case and various things that surround that. He's got a book due to come out, which is going to put his side of the story and, um, according to his allies, settle some scores. How is that going to come into the equation, do you think? This is interesting. I mean, I suppose Alex Salmond is no longer in the SNP, so he's he's not part of the, the party. Um, certainly there are in elements of the SNP and probably the broader, I'd say, pro-independence perspective. Still part of the fallout of this criminal case, dimensions around it, questions of, you know, who reported what when and, and all of those kinds of things. I mean, Alex Salmond was acquitted of the criminal charges, which he was uh, facing at the beginning of this COVID crisis. Um, in terms of the reporting around this, there's a series of restrictions as a matter of law, partly because the identity of the complainers in these cases cannot be disclosed publicly, which is uh, perfectly right in my view. But it does mean that in terms of the story that can be told in public, perhaps that is not the complete picture which some people might want to put in the public domain. Um, so in terms of these simmering tensions, I don't see a huge amount of evidence that is capturing the wider public opinion, if you like. I mean, Alex Salmond demitted office in 2014. I'm not suggesting these things are unimportant by dint of that, but I don't get a strong impression, um, as you see in the UK media, or even really in the Scottish context, that we've, we've yet had the kind of dramatic impact, which many people expected this might have in the aftermath of uh, Mr. Salmond's acquittal. Um, there's ongoing discussion in Hollywood, which is producing kind of damaging headlines, critical headlines um, for or the Scottish government's handling of this, which, as you may know, was also the subject of a civil case where effectively judicial review was taken into the complaints handling um, that were lodged against Alex Salmond and were found to be tainted by apparent bias because the Scottish government had, hadn't followed its own rules. Um, that resulted in money being expended. So there's different dimensions to all of this um, playing out. But as in my perspective, anyway, I'm not seeing it having a dramatic effect yet on public opinion or indeed particularly um, within most people within the SNP, which is, after all, a very large political party now. Uh, one final question for, for me um, about the Scottish Conservatives. So they've got a new leader that m most people won't be aware of unless they follow the Champions League, where he, <laughs> he, he, he referees. Um, he's not a... Um, a, a a Johnsonite, is he? What direction is he looking to take the party? Well, who knows? I mean, different directions, I think, in terms of it. He presented himself as a, what did he say? He said a Brexit-backing Boris positive or something like that. It was his pitch for what he was going to be. Yes, yeah, so Ruth Davidson demitted office because she'd basically had it, I think. She'd given up the ghost with um, with, with the job. Um, she had kind of tensions with Johnson notionally, but was veering all over the pitch in terms of Brexit herself, pro it, again it. You know, she was a Remainer historian but the, the line was quite unclear. She was replaced by uh, a used car salesman called Jackson Carlaw, who's a, basically, I mean, how would you define him? A, a sort of golf club Tory, um, all the way to his kind of uh, pink socks and crushed strawberry cords. You know, he was a central casting Newton Mearns kind of posh boy Tory. Um, they, they basically assassinated him to replace him with uh, Douglas Ross, who is, as he endlessly and tediously repeats, given any context, a football referee. He seems to think this is a positive. I, I, I'm not a big man for football myself, but I'm pretty sure most fans hate referees. That's my understanding. But um, anyway, uh, so he was anointed. He was the chosen one, despite being uh, the MP for Murray, 
so he replaced the former uh, Westminster leader uh, Angus Robertson for the SNP in Murray. He defeated him and was able to keep that seat in the last general election when a lot of his Scottish Tory colleagues lost theirs. Um, so what is the Douglas Ross position? I mean, he's, he's, in my view, trying to run two lines simultaneously. And those two lines are actually quite incompatible. Firstly, there's that allegedly pro-Boris, pro-Brexit kind of thing. But he's also running all over the place to try and establish his distinctiveness and his alternative take on things uh, in the Scottish Tories. Um, so, for example, he was uh, praising Marcus Raj Rashford's um, initiative around free school meals for... Uh, for poor kids, uh, while abstaining on it in the House of Commons. In fact, he didn't support it, but he was writing columns saying, I agree with that guy. Great fella. You know, they've recently moved to a position of backing um, the abolition of tuition fees in Scotland compared to the fees of in excess of £9,000 a year uh, south of it. Um, so he's trying to establish a distinctive identity. On, on the polling evidence, you know, volatile as it is, he's actually some points down on where the Tories were a few, even a few months ago. They were polling, I think, around 19%, which is somewhere short of uh, how they've done over the last few elections. I'm not sure he's really impinged on the public consciousness yet, but I think he's trying to be too clever by half. I think he's probably one of these young political actors who, who sees himself as a bit of a Machiavelli, but in fact is probably trying to run too many lines at once and leaves you with a sense of really, what are you for? What are you about? If you're a, if you're a voter in Scotland who wants a distinctive approach to the Tories, it's a hard sell to say, vote for the Tories. You know, if that's what you care about, vote for anyone else. And I suspect most Scots will uh, in the Holyrood election in 2021. Yeah, yeah. Andrew, absolutely fascinating to have you on. Um, and th thanks for uh, and thanks for agreeing to come on. Would you, would you come on again? Because we really do need um, a, a, someone to... to to keep our listeners up to date with, <laughs> with Scottish politics. So maybe we'll call on you again. Sure, to, uh, of course. No, it's my, that... my great pleasure. I mean, I think the UK is such an interesting thing. I, I lived down in England in the lead up to the first independence referendum. And that was a fascinating position to scrutinise it from. Yeah. As I think so often, you know, the extent to which the union is disunited, whatever your view on whether you're pro or anti-independence, is actually just so complicated and so profound. The levels of mutual lack of comprehension often is, is startling. So I'd be delighted to come back. Absolutely. Well, thank great you stuff. so much thanks thanks for your time and, yeah, thank you. um, and check out check out Andrew Tickell's uh, columns in the national uh, newspaper I think they're I think they're published on Sunday so check check those out. I'm sure they're available online as well Google him now um, <laughs> thank you very much Cheerio. see you later cheers uh, well fascinating stuff that was excellent um, we've got and we've, and we've got another guest got hot on his heels coming very soon cash Boyle. but we've got to go, we're going to leap straight into the news because there's tons to get to and I guess we need to talk about the, uh, the, the, the backroom shenanigans, the brouhaha in number 10 this week, Matt. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, this is the ultimate Westminster bubble yeah. story. Yeah, um, yeah. But it is important because it does say something about the continuing direction of this government. So I'm sure uh, listeners of this podcast will have been, been following it. But it was reported on Wednesday that Boris Johnson was about to appoint uh, Lee Kane his director of communications as his chief of staff in a shakeup of his operation. Uh, he's best known, well, he's always described as a former Daily Mirror uh, and Sun journalist. Um, he was never actually on staff 
uh, either of those papers. He was always just a, a shifter. So how he, he got into such a position of authority in the government, I don't know. He was talk past- you through Lee's career from beginning to end, if you want. <laughs> but you you carry on. Well, he's, he's, people will know that he was tasked with dressing up as a as a chicken and taunting David Cameron during the uh, 2010 general election campaign. A, a former colleague was last year quoted as saying, "I vividly remember him coming to the newsroom and prancing around, still in his full outfit, like a rooster." Uh, it then emerged that um, Carrie Simmons, um, Johnson's future ex-wife, was trying to block the um, appointment in a, a story that Mail Online headlined, it's the blonde assassin versus the skinhead scouser. Yeah. Um, and that's where it was at the point that um, I wrote this morning's uh, New European newsletter. <laughs> so if you got that in your <laughs> inbox at uh, uh, 8am today, it would have uh, confirmed that he was well, set to what, a point l- came. L- Let me take up the story at that yes, point, please. because what I, um, for, I've, se- I've said this a million times in this podcast, full disclosure, myself and Lee Kane are very good pals. Um, we have been for, for a good a good few years and we do... He he's he doesn't because it would be it would be so obvious. I'm not getting great leaks from him or anything like that because it would be far too obvious. Um, but we are pals. Um, so th- this this is what I this is my take on what happened here. Um, I'm led to believe, and again, this is not coming from anyone involved, but I'm led to believe that Carrie and Lee have had a and perhaps a difficult relationship for a long time because they did their paths crossed long before she was the future ex-wife of Boris Johnson, as you so hilariously put there, Matt. I enjoyed that um, because she was the head of broadcast for Number Ten, and Lee, I think, at the time was working perhaps for Michael Gove. Uh, so their their paths had crossed before anything, you know, any sort of romantic entanglement with Boris Johnson happened. But actually, I think we need to rewind a bit further than than that. This wasn't just about, and I loved James Tapsfield's story. James is an old pal of mine as well. And the, there's going to be lots of name dropping in this uh, little chat now um, about the, the Scouse Skinner because Lee's not a Scouse. <laughs> he's not a Scouser, and, and I'm not. He's from Olmskirk, isn't he? Yeah, he's not. He, he, but he's not like he's not like an episode of Bread. You know what I mean? It's um, you wouldn't say, "Oh, here comes a Scouser." Um, so for the for the younger listener, Bread was a, a pretty appalling sitcom that ran in the 1980s and painted a horrifically stereotypical image of a Roman Catholic Merseyside family. Uh, they make it and they take it home. Um, <laughs> what I'm led to believe is, and this is starting to be reported now, and I I I, I spoke to another a different source. Honestly, I've got to I really got to say this is a different source. Um, yesterday about it because I, I've got to admit I was a little bit I was a little bit surprised that, that Lee was being touted and perhaps even was offered the chief of staff role because one um, it, it, this is some something of a meteoric rise I'm not sure anyone's had a meteoric rise quite like this you're absolutely right Lee was never on staff at a national newspaper he did um, he, he shifted and he never really stuck and I was a shifter for a while and it took me a while to, to stick anywhere as well so I know how difficult that is it's not a reflection on his ability he was a fine reporter but then he went and he did he worked for a little bit at, at uh, this morning with old Philip Schofield and whoever he was reporting with at the presenting with at that point um and he sort of bounced around did freelance and stuff and then and then I came across him when I was working as a lobbyist for a law firm and he was in the, on the PR team there that's how we became pals and have remained good pals ever since he then went from there uh, in what was to, a, a, an odd move really in, for uh, many people certainly thought to be 
the uh, head of broadcast for the Leave campaign. And I think there was two reasons why Lee would have been considered for that job. One, um, he's he's very approachable, um, nice guy. You will have interviewed well. But I think the second one is I don't think there was a lot of people really wanted that kind of job because it very much meant that they were going to be perhaps tarnished afterwards. And at that point when they were hiring, there was very little belief that, that Lee were going to win. So it seemed like an odd job for what What would I do after this? Anyway, of course, as we know, and if it hadn't have been for that, this podcast probably wouldn't have existed. Leave did win. And those people who were involved in that campaign were suddenly brought in. And since then, uh, Lee has never been too far away from, from Boris Johnson and, of course, found himself in number 10 as the director of communications, which is a huge, you know, in a, in a sort of three, four-year window, or three-year window, really, he went from being... A, um, a a press officer, basically at a you know at, at a law firm, um, to a very very public role, it it you know it, it raised a lot of questions, um, and I've been critical, you know I've been openly critical in print and and on this podcast about the about some of the communications catastrophes. Frankly, I I believe of this government, especially since since COVID struck. Um, you, you know that I, I, I think that the, those things could have been handled a lot better. But it was always the case that Boris Dominic Cummings, of course, um, who I think probably was Lee's real boss, and Lee were this tight unit. They were this they were this tight team. We were all going together. It was a you know it was a they were a gang. And I think Lee certainly and Dom very much wanted them to be like a gang. You know everybody hates us, we don't care sort of thing. Until last week. When or the week before last, there's been some tensions about the um, the appointment of uh, Allegra Stratton. So she's a former journalist, now uh, advisor to Rishi Sunak, and it, it, one of Lee's most controversial ideas was sort of shaking up the lobby. So um, at least I could talk about this all day, but I won't. Basically, they wanted to um, get. They wanted to do it a bit more presidential. So every day there would be a, uh, a briefing that would be televised and that would be done by a journalist, much like you see in the White House. And um, Lee's favoured candidate for that was, uh, was a, a journalist who you, you probably haven't heard of, actually, um, called Ellie Price. I used to work with her, actually, at the PA. Uh, she's a BBC journalist. She's just a bit above. She used to do quite a lot for... Um, she took quite a lot for the uh, the Andrew Neil lunchtime show. I can't remember what it's called now, um, but 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 not not a sort of really well known face. That was Lee's choice. But but Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, um, hired a legger over his head, and that started to cause some tension. And that tension has, has rumbled on. And obviously, you know, it's uh, the atmosphere in Number Ten is fairly um, heated anyway because we've got this. Uh, lockdown, we've got these leaks, everything is going on. The the, the, the relationship between Boris and, and Lee and uh, and uh, Dominic Cummings has become more and more fractured in a in an, a bit in a and and I believe that Lee offered Tandy's resignation in last week because he thought, wait a minute, I'm being pushed out of the way here for because of Stratton. You know, maybe it's time for me to go and do something else now. Boris is desperate to keep the gang together and has offered him the chief of staff job pretty much out of nowhere, as far as I can tell. Um, whether or not the, the Carrie thing is interesting, because I've had people saying to me this morning that it wasn't, that hadn't come from Carrie's team, that had come perhaps from 
from the Keenan Cummings team. And actually, they were trying to bounce the Prime Minister into giving Lee that job because otherwise he would look like he was a weak leader who was being led by mm. by his fiance rather than um, rather than by something else. And of course, so so on Wednesday morning we woke up with Lee Kim being the chief of staff at number ten. And by the time I went to bed, broadly had had resigned. Um, I mean, it's fairly chaotic. And but actually, do you know what? I think he might have done the right thing, Matt. What do you think? Um. Uh, um... Well, I'll just point out, I didn't know that he was a, a, a pal of yours. I've That's never, all right, don't worry. I, I've, I've never met him, so I can, I, I can say pretty much what I want Listen, now, I we, we, disagree, we disagree politically on lots of things, but it's nice to have people you disagree with. Um, and, you know, we, we actually very rarely talk about politics at all. Um, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's fine. You can slag him off all day long I, I and think, go for I think, it. I think we can agree on one point, which... I, it, it, well, I certainly think if he's director of communications, he doesn't deserve a promotion since the government's handling of communications has yeah. been utterly incompetent with everyone up to and including the prime minister struggling to articulate restrictions. Um, the bigger point, I think, is that the chief of staff needs to be a skilled administrator, not a campaigner. You know, Johnson's high command is entirely made up of former vote leave campaigners who delivered a referendum and election, but you know, once ensconced in government have shown that they can't run a bath. And I'm aware that one draws a bath, one doesn't run it. <laughs> I think case anybody picks me up on that. Hey, they I will. Can see we've got another guest um, on the on the line. Yes, Rick. well let's let's bring let's bring in Cashball because I'm sure Cash has got an opinion on this actually. So why don't we just dive straight in? What is what's your sort of take on it? Well, my take is exactly um, sort of well broadly similar to what yourself and, and Matt have just been talking about in the sense that with the Boris Johnson is essentially ensconce these people into these high power positions in his government on the back of their successful and duplicitous arguably running of a vote leave campaign and so it's almost like trying to transfer you know a a flawed skill set into running very serious you know government departments and very serious government matters and it it it, you know you know broadly it has it hasn't worked and so Mm. You know, whether the rationale or the, I suppose, in terms of the salacious element, the the carry sort of influence, the perceived influence of Boris Johnson's fiance, I guess, gives it that little bit of extra spice insofar as the rhetoric can become, oh, Boris Johnson's being led by, you know, his fiance rather than being his own leader and his own man or whatever Boris Johnson supposes himself to be. So that gives it that little bit of spice. But when you look, when you boil down to the sort of the substantial question, which should be, are these people performing the roles they're paid handsomely to perform? Are they performing them well? The answer has to be an unequivocal no. And so I think the decision's ultimately the correct one, as you as you both were saying. Yeah, I think, I mean, listen, friend or no friend, I agree, I agree with you completely, Kash. I, th- I don't mm-hmm. think the handling has been correct. I don't think you can put that down to any particular one person. I think it's a broad, it's a broad failing. Um, with regards it's to like messaging it's a systemic problem, isn't it? I think yeah. it's it's almost like a cultural it's a cultural problem. And uh, it's like I, it's like with anything with anything when you've got a you know when you've got a team that's successful, whether it's successful for good or indeed evil, when you've got when you've got a team together, there is a, a sort of human that, a thing that you want to wrap yourself around. You want to take that gang forward with you. But like you say, they they and gang is is well, it's probably the right word actually for this particular instance. But it, <laughs> 
this particular gang isn't probably the gang we, we want or need in number 10, is it? So is it actually good news? And I was quite glad that, that Lee walked because I think, I think, you know, I, I, if I was him, I just want, I, I just couldn't be doing with the hassle and the nonsense of it. But also I think it, it almost feels like he's risen above it. He could never be chief of staff after this, could he? Um, and if he feels like, uh, he, he didn't want to get in the way of Lego Stratton or whatever that actual story is, then I think he he, he leaves with an element of dignity at least. Whereas Cummings, who, who uh, you know, actually threatened to quit and then didn't, there's a man that's not got any dignity at all. I mean, I think he abandoned his dignity in that <laughs> Many years ago. being a trip to Barnard <laughs> Castle. Um, but no, I think you're absolutely right. The one point that you made that I... Well, all of your points were really salient, but one particularly was the the idea that in times that are testing and precarious as these are, you do want, I guess, people that have, or teams that have a natural rapport, even a friendship, but it has to, and I think that in theory is a nice ideal, but the composition of this particular gang, to use your, use your wording, Richard, has been, you know, nothing but counterproductive to all the goals that the team, you know, is sort of aiming to achieve. And so I think in... In principle, having a team where the people have a rapport, even a friendship, have a real good working relationship is a really good thing. But this particular composition is inherently flawed. And I think uh, the resignation really typifies that. Yeah. Any any final thoughts on, on that, Matt? Yeah, I'd agree with, with everything that's said now. Um, I thought it was interesting talk there of what they're, what they're looking to achieve. I don't know what they're looking to achieve. You know, they were elected um, on, a, on a manifesto commitment to get Brexit done. Um, one way or another, um, that will be done by the end of this year. And then what? You know, we've been told that they're going to build, build, build and build back better and all these various vacuous three-word slogans. But in terms of what they actually want to do as a government, I couldn't tell you. Well, build back better almost certainly was, was one that Lee was proud of because he put it in his resignation letter. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like that's it's almost like sort of trolling them it's like look at what i came up with and now i'm leaving um, well lee and he does listen i'm sure come on and tell us all about it i know you won't give us the exclusively um, but, we, but what, wouldn't it be great if lee king gave his own the interview to the new european podcast that would be cool i would say oh, if cool. if we could have a combination of him breaking his silence on this podcast and then Joe Biden taking the oath of office on a copy of The Art of the Deal, then this podcast can retire. Steve, Steve who? <laughs> um, Cash, let's move on now from number 10 and, 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 and silly, you know, goings on at number 10 and, and backbiting and move on to um, move on to something far more interesting why don't you tell us a little bit about um your background because I, I, I know i know you're london based but i'm picking up that that's not a cockney accent there no um obviously i i am london based i'm a reporter um in the east london team so i work across a few of our east london archons east london titles so mm-hmm. you know across like newham tower hamlets havering redbridge and barking and dagenham but obviously uh, and i do a little bit for the new european at weekends as well but obviously, as you detected, I am from, well, I'm Irish, um, but I grew up uh, in Northern Ireland. So um, sort of in between Derry and Belfast, uh, hence the accent. Um, but I've lived in England for coming up to 12 years now, which really reveals my age. Um, however, <laughs> the accent doesn't really dissipate. Well, it, it does in the context of when I go home, I sort of 
repeatedly get told that I've become anglicized. Um, <laughs> but in the context of an English environment, I'm still very, very Irish sounding, which I'm it's, it's, proud of. Absolutely. It's a wonderful accent. Never, ever lose it. What, what do you think about Biden and what Biden means for, for Ireland? Well, I think in terms of what I think of Biden, I think the universal agreement, and when I say universal, I mean universal with the exception of Trump supporters, the agreement and the consensus would be that his win and his victory is, you know, a victory for humanity, broadly speaking. I think you that the, the phrase of when America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold always comes to my mind because what happens in America really does reverberate around the world. And so what I think about Biden's victory in that sense is that it's a real win for humanity that could ultimately tilt the trajectory in America and beyond in a more positive way than it, than it has been, obviously, over the last four years. I mean, obviously, Biden, uh, as, as, as many Americans um, do tend to, really is proud of his Irish heritage. And so from an Irish perspective, you know, we've always known and he's never shied away from the affinity he has for those roots, obviously, which are in uh, Louth and uh, Mayo. So he, from an Irish perspective, I mean, I think like a lot of nationalities were quite territorial and we, we, we like people who like us. And so from, from that perspective, he's a natural ally. But I think the, the Irish perception of Joe Biden goes beyond that because of his desire to, you know, adhere to and preserve the Good Friday Agreement um, and, its, and its terms so much so that there will be no UK-US trade deal. That's what he has said anyway. There will be no trade deal between the two countries unless he gets a guarantee that the Good Friday Agreement and its terms will be respected, um, which obviously are under huge threat because of the internal market bill um, at the moment. So to sort of summarize, I, I really like Joe Biden and the Irish really like Joe Biden. Uh, and I, I think Joe Biden likes us as well. Yeah, I think we all, we're all agree that, that we all really like Joe Biden. Um, <laughs> which... Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's, he's a nice sort of calming influence. And I, I guess, I guess the, the previous four years have been so defined by anarchy and chaos that, you know, even a less calm person would look calm by comparison. But Joe Biden does genuinely seem like the quintessentially, you know, sort of peaceful leader. And that's exactly what's needed, I think. And I mean, we've had some nonsense already from uh, Brexiteer Tory MPs around this, because I think it, the, you know, the hearing the penny drop now that Biden was serious in, in his, his threat that there would be no trade deal if, if hmm. the Good Friday Agreement is, uh, isn't, isn't respected. And we had probably my favourite story of the week was John Redwood um, apparently writing a, a letter to uh, to Biden, uh, a letter of warning he described that I was telling him to to butt out of our affairs over over Brexit and and Northern Ireland. I was really looking forward to this morning phoning his office and finding out if he'd had a had a reply back. But of course, he since said that he didn't send the letter because he still thinks that Trump may actually uh, overturn this election and rightfully win it. Excellent. I mean, that just sort of epitomizes the, you know, I guess a faction of the people that we're that we're dealing with um but you know regardless i think that letter if it was sent would probably have promptly found its way into a shredder um but beyond that i think joe biden does not seem uh, and i don't believe he's going to renege on his stance on this and it doesn't benefit the U the us to do that i mean ultimately the uk is the, the the party in this that's totally relying on the creation of a trade deal so ultimately if that's what america and the us if that's 
the terms that they stipulate, then the UK will have to adhere to them. Otherwise, no trade deal. And that's it. So I, I can't, I've still not quite got my head around. If we, uh, if we crash out without a trade deal uh, on the 31st of December, what happens the next day on that border? The first time the lorry crosses over carrying um, goods between the UK and the EU as that border will be. I mean, do we know what actually happens? And will we see any difference? I don't Do believe not, not physically at first, because the whole the whole the whole thrust of the, the argument is that this internal market bill gives the UK government the license to tweak and basically alter parts of their withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland protocol by 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 proxy. And so the whole argument is that there are fears that a hard border could be erected. But at the moment, I mean, given where we are in the calendar, it's not gonna. It's not gonna be a situation where we wake up on the first of January, twenty twenty one, and there's all, there's a hard border surrounding the six counties. That's not. But it's just the fear of it or the possibility of it that the internal market bill opens up. That really seems that is, in my view, justifiably scaring people. And so, you're you're right. It is really really weird. No one really knows exactly what it's going to look like um, beyond the fact that there will be custom checks. So. Here's a question for both of you. Um, when do we think that the Conservative and Unionist Party became so cavalier about the future of, of the Union? We were talking earlier about Scotland, which um, is on a knife edge, it, it would seem, from the conversation we had earlier. Um, Northern Ireland, I mean, there, there was it was once, I think it was last year, um, I think it was the Sun on Sunday that reported that Dominic Cummins had been heard saying that Northern Ireland could get in the effing sea as far as he was concerned, although, you know, whether he's a Conservative or, or, or not is, is, is a completely different question. But yeah. When did the Conservative become so blasé about Northern Ireland? I mean, I think I, I, I ultimately do believe, and maybe it is by virtue of me growing up there and you just get like a, a sort of a, almost like, a, like an implicit feeling. You know, Northern Ireland, I, I do think it's broadly considered as an inconvenience as a devolved nation. I mean, if you look at... Um, you know, you look at even its geographical positioning, uh, the fact that it is a devolved nation, but it is by virtue of, you know, a conflict that originally began in 1921. So it's not, you know, it's not something that the current generation necessarily would be would be passionate about. And if you were to consider the fact that all of this, in terms of the Internal Market Bill, in terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol that was drafted into the withdrawal agreement, all of this has arisen by virtue of the fact that Northern Ireland exists as an evolved nation and its presence in Ireland without a hard border to the south of the country makes it makes a Brexit really hugely inconvenient because there is no way to satisfy both the aims of not having a hard border, which has been the case up until now, but by the same token, when we leave the EU or when Britain leaves the EU, you're still going to have a country that has no land border but you've got two separate nations one that's in the eu and one that isn't and so to bring it full circle i think the union or the unionist party or the conservative party aren't necessarily dismissive of northern ireland per se but the, as a devolved nation it's an inconvenience it's a huge inconvenience and brexit has only served to exacerbate this but what i would say as a, as a proud resident and someone who grew up in in that part of the world it might be considered an inconvenience, but but ultimately the people that live there are not responsible for that. But ultimately, 
should things transpire in the way that the British government are kind of planning or potentially planning, people in Northern Ireland will really suffer. And that would be the biggest shame. I think we've really learned things today, haven't we, Richard? I am constantly learning things from our guests. I am, I, I am simply a host. That is all <laughs> I do. I tell you what I, I, I learned um, about Northern Ireland the hard way a few years ago. Um, Belfast has got two airports. It does. And uh, I, I found out the hard way, and it's a mistake. You only make once. <laughs> is it like when Were I... Were you meant I... to be at International for a flight and you thought it was City Airport and you didn't get there on time? I think it was the other way around. Oh, really? Okay. Um, but fortunately, <laughs> um, I, I I came out of the, the, the terminal, and I, I will not offend you by doing the accent, but a, a taxi driver looked at oh, me and he said, uh, you're at the wrong airport, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he's like, I've seen that look of fear before. Get in. Get in. <laughs> I like that, like the, the the menacing kind of tone at the end. Um, you know, if you, if you get in, you might get word to where you need to go. But if you don't get in, he might kill you anyway. You know. So, um, yeah, there are two airports, and there's actually a third airport in the, in Derry, but it's basically like someone's garage that planes occasionally leave from. Um, it's like it's tiny, is what I mean. Someone um, did once ask me at uh, at London Stansted where the tube was. Um, <laughs> It seems like every every airport, certainly in Europe now, is named after the the, the sort of the, the main city draw. But I mean, I remember going to Rome, and it took me about an hour to get to actually into Rome from the airport where I landed. It's a huge con. Oh, well, but, the... I mean, get a bit of Belfast. The airport's great in that respect because it, it genuinely is in the east of the city, and it's very it is very well placed. The the worst of those is that uh, it's now branded London South End Airport. I know. I know. No. No, 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 no. South End is in Essex. That's, that's silly. Well, so is Stansted. I know, true, very true. I mean, are any of the airports apart from City Airport actually in London? No. I mean, Heathrow, Heathrow would be, wouldn't it, I guess? Oh, well, I mean... I'm not yeah, sure I it is. is I mean, London Luton. Luton is also in... Bedfordshire. Bedfordshire yeah, there. That yeah, was yeah. Well, Luton is exactly 33 miles on the M1 from London. So, I mean, that is, as far as I'm concerned, that's a fair old, fair old way, but... There you go. There's international airports for you. Listen, um, what we're going to do now, and Cash, if you wouldn't mind, please do stay with us, is we're going to take a little break and then we're going to do my sweary quiz. How about that? Let's do it. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Welcome back. So um, I've decided that um, we're, we're going to do a sweary quiz this week, but I'm not allowed to swear because Matt is too bone idle to put the bleeps in cash, all right? So okay. it's a we, very we time consuming process. Does that mean yeah. I'm also not allowed to swear? Just so, well, I, know where the, just so I know where the line is. <laughs> just you know what? We, we were worried about having someone from Northern Ireland and a Scotsman on the show um, in, in, on one episode and asking him not to swear, but it's so far. You've done, you've done pretty well. So we'll try, try and keep it like that. Um, cool. So what I'm going to do is I've got my two favourite um, spin doctors, press secretaries are friend of the podcast, of course, and new European uh, editor at large, Alistair Campbell, and Malcolm Tucker. I mean, the, the, and, and we've also had a tickel on the show today as well. So there's a bit of a, there is a bit of a thick of it theme so what i'm going to do is i'm going to read you a quote and you've got to tell me whether it's tucker or campbell all right okay yeah okay it, it's not very difficult this 
Um, I, I don't know. You under, you overestimate me. Uh, all right. How about this one? The prime minister is not a gay gangster. <laughs> I mean, that could go either way. I mean, that, I, that that feels distinctly Campbell to me. I don't know why. Okay. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Tucker. All right. Uh, well, I can tell you that the prime minister is not a gay gangster. Was Alistair Campbell? <laughs> <laughs> An the actual... of the Irish. <laughs> the context. It's some... Well, I'm not entirely sure, but it was some. It was something to do with what religion is he? Um, so he confirmed that he wasn't a gay gangster. Although I wasn't entirely sure that that was a religion. I wasn't familiar with that denomination. Um, no, <laughs> no. But I think um, I think what he was trying to say was we ain't going to tell you what he is because it was there was a lot of discussion. It seems like much much um, simpler and times but you know we were all obsessed with whether tony blair was going to um was going to become a catholic you might remember mm. cash you'll be far too young to uh, to have come across that but that was um that was quite a discussion at the time i remember that at the time oh i remember reading about it recently relatively recently it's because his wife grew up in liverpool and she's a catholic isn't she that is right? that's right and, and he he uh he didn't convert until after he left number 10 actually for you know i i was always amused as to why anyone would be really that interested but uh there you go so that is one nil to cash well done okay just before you go on in case anybody uh, any listeners wonder if they get picked up on the mic uh my next door neighbor has decided that 20 to 2 on a thursday is <laughs> drilling time <laughs> so hopefully the mic won't i think that's that not a euphemism <laughs> oh, goodness me very much well, a black and decker when <laughs> when before the podcast started, a kickstart was going on outside uh, Matt's flat. Now, Cash, you're definitely too young to remember kickstart. But if the listeners remember kickstart, I think we should start a campaign to get it back because it was brilliant uh, school holiday viewing. Um, all right, next one. Who was it that did your media training? Myra Hindley. It's terrible. All these hands all over the place. You were like a sweaty octopus trying to unhook a bra. It was like watching John Leslie at work. <laughs> That's Tucker. I've seen that. I've seen that. Episode. Yeah, I, I would love it to have been Campbell, but no, that's definitely. Yeah, Tucker. I, 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 Peter Capaldi is so good in that show. So yeah, I that distinctly remember that being a Tucker quote. That is a superb quote, and it is Tucker. Okay, here we go. My favorite was the one asking me go to America, have medical treatment, turn me into a black man, and then film and then make a film exposing racism in the deep south. Intrigued, I asked if all of me would go black? I think so, came the reply. And can I go back to being white at any time of my choosing? I asked. I'll have to check that, came the reply. Well, I assume that's Campbell, but um, again, I'm amused as to what's actually going on there. Isn't it? It's weird with all of these, you feel like either, maybe not the octopus one, but you know, you feel like any either of them could say it, but the context feels so weird for anything in real life. Oh, I'm, I'm stumped as well. I, I feel like it it couldn't be Campbell, could it? Oh, Are you know. going with Campbell, Cash? I'm, yeah, I'm going Campbell. I Maybe I should like stick with the principle of just alternating between my selections. So I went with Campbell first, then Tucker. Maybe I'll just go with Campbell again. No, you know what? I'm going to go with Tucker. Oh. Well, it's level pegging again now because you went with Campbell. Uh, that uh, sorry, because you went with Tucker. That was Campbell. And oh, the context yeah. is this was this was part of a um, a really good Cudlip uh, uh, speech that he gave, Cudlip lecture, and uh, he was talking about how uh, he wasn't really a celebrity, but had been sort of thrust into the into the public limelight because of his job. 
um, much like we've seen this week, of course. Um, and uh, he said that he was offered, uh, I'm a celebrity, come dancing on ice with rollerblades, et cetera, et cetera, and all these things he could have done. And that was the weirdest one. He was offered to be basically turned into a, you know, a, a person of colour and then sent to the deep South of America to expose racism. A very questionable um, plan for a show, which of course he didn't do, but was intrigued by it, not because he wanted to do it, but he was intrigued by it as opposed to nonsense. I'm just and... gonna say, I think I think he made the right choice there. I think he yeah, did. I, I think he did. And we never did see that show. What a shocker. Um, like all right. That one didn't get greenlit. I feel like that's important. What about this one then, Matt? You might want to make a note of the time. If some can something up, that will pick the worst possible time to it up and call because that a Tucker. Tucker. <laughs> sorry, Matt. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> that was Campbell, yeah. Uh, no, that probably was Campbell, but that was, you know, in, in, in behind closed doors. Maybe that it was, was like Tucker inspired by Campbell. Well, I think that, yes, I think back in the day, he probably was. Although I, I never, um, I, I never got any of I was Campbell was a bit before my time on on News Desilin and for me to ever get a roasting from Campbell. But I do know people who have and they would still, even at the mention of his name, would go drip white. He's much more cuddly and nice when he comes on the pod now. He's definitely, believe it or not, he's definitely mellowed. So do you know what? That was a draw. There was some others, but I think we've had enough swearing. So that was a draw. Congratulations. It's been a, it's been a week of, uh, of, of spin doctoring and nonsense behind the scenes. Um, and that brings us to a close. For, let me thank Cash. You're an absolute star. Thank you so much for coming on. I've got a feeling we might be asking you on again, if that's all right with you. Oh, I mean, I, sign me up. I, anything like this, I, I love. So please. Fantastic. Fantastic. My people will be in touch with yours. And by that, I mean, Matt will probably <laughs> be in touch after the podcast. I'll probably email I'm you. I'm glad that you said that because I don't, I don't have people. I have <laughs> well, you me. do now. <laughs> I don't have, I mean, I have a cat. Maybe she, I don't know, she doesn't really take my calls primarily because she doesn't have thumbs. Um, but yes, I, any, any time, this was really, really fun. So thank you very much. And I'd be delighted to come back on. Excellent. Well, you do have people now. You have Matt Withers. Um, so he will sort that out and we will be hearing from you very soon. Thank you also to Andrew Tickell from uh, Classical Cardonian University, who I also think we'll be hearing from again. Um, and all that leaves me to say is that you should uh, follow me on Twitter at Porrit, P-O-R-R-I-T-T. Matt, can they follow you on Twitter? Um, they can. It's at Matt Withers. I, I managed to bag that early. Well done. Cash, have you got a Twitter handle? I do. And it is, I have to double check it there for a sec because I, I forgot. For, I don't know why, because it's just my name. Um, <laughs> at Cash Boyle. So Cash like money, Boyle like Doyle, but with a B. I don't know. I don't know. That's meant to be more snippy, but basically, a cash boy. We need, to, we need to, we need to sort you out a nickname. You've got such a wonderful name, Cash. We need to think of something. Maybe, I don't know. I'll get my thinking cap on. Ca not, not to spoil things, but Cash is actually a nickname. My full name's Cashlam. Well, there you go. There you go. Sorry. But if you want, you can put like a dollar sign in instead of the S. Sometimes oh I yeah, like a like a rapper might do. Yeah, sometimes I do that to be. <laughs> To, to feel fancy if you prefer, if you want i'll leave that in, in your camp <laughs> superb right, um, check you. check out the new european website at uh, new european is it .com, matt or .co.uk .co.uk <laughs> check that out if you haven't already go out and buy the printed product it's three pounds it's always superb and do you know what it, it's even quite hopeful this week there is some glimmers of hope in there we've got 
a president-elect who isn't utterly bonkers. There's a vaccine on the horizon. It'll be Christmas soon. There are things to look forward to. We've got a really good piece by friend of the pod, Ian Dunt, uh, who I know our listeners love. And he, yeah. he he's, he's an angry man, but um, he's written a really hopeful piece along those lines this week, which is well worth a read. There is, there is hope. There is hope for us all. Um, we will be back next week. Until then, Mr. Campbell, play your bagpipes. Here you go. <laughs> Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.